Hello, hell, do you read me? Do you read me, hell? Do you read me, hell? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, hell. Come on down and jump some of this shit. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Podcast where we break down and discuss a new movie every week from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we take a look into the 1984 debut film from the Brothers Cohen titled Blood Simple, starring Francis McDormand, John Getz, Dan Hedaya, and M. Emmett Walsh. The unscrupulous Private Eye Visser is hired by a small-town Texas bar owner, Marty, to murder his cheating wife, Abby, and her paramour, Ray. But things don't go exactly to plan when P.I. Weiser changes the narrative to favor his own interests. He then goes blood simple by double-crossing Marty and attempting to take out all parties who are suspected of foul play. However, nothing is that simple when blood is involved. Blood Simple earned the Coen Brothers a grand jury prize at the 1985 Sundance Film Festival and a 1986 Independent Spirit Award, among an additional three wins and six overall nominations. The film was released in 1984 after experiencing some difficulty finding a distributor and being rejected by Warner Brothers, but eventually getting bought by Circle Films after it debuted at the Toronto International Film Festival. I'm Gabe Wienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined today by Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how the hell are you? I'm good. I, I'm really good. I, I, I'm a little worried I might ruffle some feathers on this one. I think you might. Let, let me put it probably... this way. Rather than, I'm not going to, I don't think I'll ruffle feathers. I'm going to ask a lot of questions on this one, I think, because the Coen brothers are, are highly regarded in the film world and by movie buffs all over the place. Uh, I might need a little bit of clarification on why, because I don't, I don't dislike their movies. They make good movies, but in my opinion, that's pretty much what they are. They have a couple great movies, really, really good movies like the big Lebowski, uh, the true grit remake I thought was really good, but I don't ever, I rarely leave a Coen brothers movie thinking that was fantastic and i know i'm in the minority here and so i I might need a little bit of clarification as to why people are just in love with with the films they make you might be you might not be in the minority i don't know that that that's necessarily true uh in in our small two-man group here you're in the minority if i can have more than one voice on this one i think you can (laughs) okay (laughs) But I see what you're saying. So, you know, one of the things before we get deep into it is I'm surprised that it took me because I'm probably on the opposite side of the field uh, to you. And I am one of those high admirers of their films. And we'll get into why and some of the things that I like about their stuff. Uh, I'm surprised it took me this long. We're 30 plus episodes into the podcast. And this is our first Coen Brothers film. I'm surprised too, actually, because I know you're a big fan. In so much that in 2012, my wife was pregnant with our third child. We were trying to figure out a name. 
I was on a film set. I was helping produce a small independent film. And I was talking to the script supervisor about my wife being pregnant and us coming up with names. And she started asking me what my favorite filmmakers were. And I started naming off a few and I named off the Coen brothers. And it hit me like a light bulb. I'm going to name my, my son Cohen, C-O-E-N, spell it just like they do. I called my wife on set, from set, and was like, I got the this name. This is it. I said, this is it, Cohen. And miraculously, she was like, yeah, that's a great name. She went with it. Yes. <laughs> she went yes. with it 100%. <laughs> so my son is literally named after the Cohen brothers. Oh, uh, you're, you're the wrong person to ask about this then. I, at least you're not insulted. I've had discussions with people before. No, 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 no. I am the right person because I'm also fair. That's true. So I, okay. So I, what I mean by that is I do have bias because I love their movies. However, I can stand back and observe uh, the other opinion and, and, and have a little unbiasy towards it. Like I can agree with what you're, I, I can go there. Right, right. But it, it doesn't mean I'll, I should, I'll necessarily agree. Because, so I don't think I'm the wrong person. No, you're, yeah, you're definitely not the wrong person. Here's the thing, like with the Coen brothers, their films are beautiful. Their films are really well technically made. The stories are the things that don't always grab me. And when they do grab me, they, sometimes they lose me. And that's uh, like No Country for Old Men. I know people love that movie. And it's to me, it's a good movie. But I didn't walk out of that being like, that was fantastic. You know, like there are some things that I just, and it's been so long since I've seen it, but there are some things that were just, it just didn't really connect with me that well. Like I, uh, you know, when, uh, and I can't remember the, the name of the, the main character, but when he dies, it's off screen, you know, and it's, it's, there's just some things in there that I'm like, I just, it, it, they leave me wanting more, it feels like. Uh, Fargo is, is kind of a similar thing. Like, I love the premise. I love the characters. But the story just, there's something, I, I, can, I wish I could explain what it is. There's something missing to me to, to, for me to go all the way to say, this is a great film. Lebowski, though, <laughs> Uh, for anyone who's listening to the podcast, Gabe, Gabe is, uh, he, he's I just, visibly. I had, to, <laughs> I had to take a, I had to breathe it in. I have to hear what, because I'm fair. I mean it. I, I want to hear what you're saying, right? Um, and I will admittedly say this about their films, and then we'll get into Blood Simple. That their films are heavily plot driven. Mm -hmm. Their films are heavily uh, with, with multiple characters, right? Right. So it could be hard to attach to a particular character, right? It's so much about plot. I think the story style is, so, is executed so well. Everything is so pieced together, almost, I don't want to say perfect because I don't agree with that statement of, of it being perfect. But it's close, and and there's very few holes in what they do. Everything's in has very much an intent. So the action is driven by those things, and it can it can come across a little boring potentially. Yeah, and yes, uh, like in I'll give Blood Simple as an example. This is a very intense 
suspenseful movie. But there were times when I was like, this is kind of boring, which is strange because I was enthralled at, at the really, really good parts. But there were parts where I'm like, this is dragging just a little bit. It's a little bit slow. But there's just there's something I, I don't know what it is. I think you might be onto something with there are, are, are so many characters and it's so intricate. And you're right. It, everything is very deliberate. And I almost feel like I'm either not smart enough to understand it or it's just I, I just am not the person it's made for. Again, I don't dislike any of their movies. I, I don't think they're bad by any by any stretch. I just I'm not getting I don't walk out of their movies being like that was great. Other than the Big Lebowski and then the True Grit remake I thought was fantastic. Those ones. But like if you look at something like Hail Caesar, it's a good movie. But overall it's kind of forgettable. And I'm trying to think Burn After Reading, same thing. Like I walked out of that being like I mean I know it was good and the performances were good and the story's pretty good, but I'm going to I'm not going to remember what happened, you know, in in 2 months time from now. You know, you said something about verging on boring, right? Like verging on boring where there's lull moments mm-hmm. where you get bored. And the way that I kind of put it in my pantheon of filmmakers and I I've told this to other people which is I think that uh really great films aren't always the most entertaining. So I'm not trying to get too deep or like too layered into sure. like, or too pretentious. Right, right. right. So like, this is our art <laughs> in its finest. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to do that. With your eyes closed, your I, nose way up in the air. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I will say that because it's put together so well, it's almost a form of art in the way that it's presented. I look at something, I'll, I'll go back to another legendary filmmaker and, and one that everyone crowds towards and kind of flocks to. You think Kubrick, right? Just in the, in the, in the world of filmmaking, like Kubrick's a ma- or considered a master, right? By a lot of people. Whether people agree or not, that's up to them, their opinion. I happen to agree. But I also happen to say that 2001 A Space Odyssey verges on the biggest spectrum I've ever seen, which is complete boredom and utter fascination. Absolutely. It's almost like it's, it's the, the boring parts are almost, it's so fascinating that he put something so, so I don't want to say dull, but so slow and made it so amazing. Like it, that, it, that almost makes it great in and of itself, which is strange. Right. And this is, and now you're leaning into my point. Right. I, as, I was halfway is, through that is, and I was like, I know right where he's going with this. Right. <laughs> I just, I threw out the bait and I just was like. <laughs> Reeling it in. <laughs> just kidding. But, but I mean, I'm not comparing the two filmmakers. I think they're obviously different. However, I think in the, in the, the articulation of how they make movies, right. They're, they're verge. They also verge on that sense of there's moments of slow, lull kind of doldrum (laughs) but it somehow still becomes fascinating so they're playing that spectrum from boring to uh unique or fascinating or 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 interesting or you know whatever the adjective might be to describe it so for me that's kind of where they fall and i think because 
it's a craft. I look at filmmaking for me as like a craft. So like I look at, you're a sports guy. I'm a sport. We like sports. We like basketball. Everyone that listens to this knows that by now. We bring it up in every podcast. <laughs> but like there's a skill set to basketball. Like there's a craft. Like Steph Curry, I mean, handles for days, get unnoticed, but like he's crafty. Right. Right. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like super crafty. And like, so like if I'm comparing that to filmmaking and I'm looking at this, this kind of uh, elite podium of filmmakers, I look at the Coen brothers and I go, they're crafty. They're like Steph Kurt, like they're crafty in how they do things. They're clever. It's a little witty. Sometimes it's on the nose, but that's also intentional. You know, I actually like it when they do on the nose stuff. Like for me, that's when they're at their best. Yeah. Like the Fargo uh, in Fargo, just the accents and just just the 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 Midwestern personalities of, oh, shucks, you know, that is so on the nose, but it's so good. That's the best part of that movie to me. William H. Macy is so good when he's just playing a dumb jackass, you know, like it's it's so good. And I think you're right. Like there there are films just. Uh, are overflowing with craft and you can feel it. You can absolutely feel it again. Like everything's technically spectacular. They're all beautifully shot They're, Everything is, is immaculately done, but there's just, like I said, there's just something to be desired in the story for me. And I don't, I can't put my finger on what it is. And it might just be because it's not always traditional storytelling and I might be what? programmed to want that. I don't know. No, I think you're, you're on to something there. You could look at it and go, well, this isn't the traditional narrative type. Usually there's, uh, I wouldn't say abrupt, but unfulfilled endings, yeah. uh, things that don't, you know, don't leave you going, yay, or whatever, my, or excited or sad or whatever it might be. They just kind of end in, a, in kind of an abyss of darkness usually. Yes, that's <laughs> um, <right>. but, <laughs> but, but here's the thing, and let's get into Blood Simple um, because this will set it up and then we can discuss this movie. I was watching this. Now I've seen Blood Simple maybe half a dozen times. I watched it twice in preparation for this because for me, I can actually, it is a rewatchable. Mm-hmm. So I can continually watch it every time. We know that's one of my factors in determining whether a movie is good. And so I can rewatch it over and over again. And I was watching it again just before we started the podcast and my wife joined me in watching it and she had never seen it before. And I even told her, I said, you're my wife and you've never seen this movie. You need, this is, this is required viewing here. And I was like 15 years in and we're, the D word's coming up. This, this could really, de- you know, determine the course of our marriage from now on, uh, exactly. on how your react, what your reaction is to this film. But she responded in the best way, which was like, yeah, and you've never invited me to watch it. And I was like, oh, slam. Oh, that's my she dunked on so, you, man. Just got dunked on. Yep. But <clears throat> I was watching it, and I was kind of talking about it as things were coming up. And I just said, like, when you're watching this movie, at no point, and we do a lot of first-time director films, at no point in this film, for me, did I ever think this is a first-time filmmaker's movie. Agreed. I looked over at my wife and I said, see, some people are just born to do things. Like, they're just born. They came, those brothers came out of the womb and they're like, we tell stories. That's what we do. Right. Yep. Like, whether you like them or not, I'm just saying, like, we tell stories in a film structure and that's what we do. 
like we don't do anything else. I mean, everything about you know it. I mean? This is their this is their first film, and this is this is something I actually enjoyed this movie more than a lot of their films. And again, I like I like their movies, but uh, I, I this one when it ended, I was like, okay, okay, like it wasn't perfect. It wasn't fully my thing. There were you know some things that were. Um, it took me out of it a little bit, but overall, I'm like, okay, I, I, I like this. I had not seen this movie before, actually, which is kind of surprising. But uh, when it ended, I was like, I, 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 I could, if, there, if they were more, if they did stuff more like this, I'm down. Like, I'm super down. Part of it was the acting. Part of it was the casting. Um, part of it was, I mean, there, you know, everyone who's ever listened to this show knows that I love a little blood in my movies. And so there was some blood in there and there was some kind of gross parts. And I, I liked that. And so I walked out. Plus, the story wasn't too. It was simple, but it was but it wasn't simple, if that makes sense. So uh, Jess came down and she, she started watching it about halfway through with me. And it was right at the point where and I where Marty's getting buried alive. And I have to explain to her that he's not like I had to explain like, well, Ray didn't shoot him. It was another guy that shot him. And I had to explain. It wasn't until I was explaining the plot to her that I'm like, this is actually not very simple at all. Like it's at a lot of movies when it's when it's complex, you get lost in it. But this was so simple to follow. And I didn't realize it It took me trying to explain it to realize how complex it actually is and how intricate uh, every single character is and how important they are to the overall plot. This is what I go back to that craftiness. Yeah. Right. They're, they're crafty. Like uh, we, I think we bring this up on every podcast, not because we're fascinated by the film, but you look at something as complex as like killing of a sacred deer. You're like, what's going on? Yeah. There is complexity because there's layers that I don't understand. Right. Whereas here, the layers seem simple enough. And as you backtrack them, like you were saying, they all make sense and they, they're, you could follow them. And so, and a lot of it's um, done with, with very minimal dialogue too. What, what, what's your, tell me your, uh, your thoughts on, on their writing. So the dialogue itself, you know, speak about the dialogue, the, the interaction of the characters, uh, the authenticity or not. What was the writing like <clears throat> when you were watching the film? I, uh, I liked it a lot. Um, the writing was done so clearly that it is easy to follow and it's and it, like i like i just said like it's not till later you look back and you're like wow that was really intricate there was a lot of moving pieces going on in this thing i but to me the way that they've told a story with very little dialogue and with a lot of, and very little on the nose um uh exposition i guess they they really are letting the the character's behavior tell the story and move it along and you don't have like you don't have to have race say specifically and I can't remember Francis McDormand's character, but you don't have have to have him specifically say to her, I think you shot your husband. You know, it's just it's all the way he carries himself and the way the scene plays out. And it's not until about halfway through the scene that you realize that he thinks that she's responsible for him getting shot. Yeah, there's a lot of misdirection by miscommunication. Yes. Or, or unclear communication between the characters. And it's done by the way they talk, like you mentioned, which is 
them essentially saying minimal things to each other and the things they're, they're saying actually aren't on the nose. They are, I think what's interesting is I think why, and I bring up the dialogue because I think it's extremely cleverly written for, uh, for two filmmakers who have never made a movie before. Um, and we'll get into that because I think that's comical to me. I, and I'll just jump into, I saw an interview doing my research. You may have seen this where Ethan Cohen said, I'd never even been on a film set before. Oh my God. That, that's, that's <laughs> baffling to me that they could never have any experience and this is what comes out of it. That, that's why when I'm watching and I'm hearing the characters interact and the dialogue, just the, I always love little subtle pieces of dialogue that make me laugh, that tie into an action that happened previously mm-hmm. that we saw. So one is when Visser's walking or sorry, when Marty's walking to the PI, the private investigator, and across the group of kids. Do you know what I'm talking no. about? When, he, when he's meeting oh, up yes, with him. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And as he's walking up, he's, got, he's broken his finger in a previous scene because he tried to assault an attempted, we call it an attempted murder on his wife, but she broke his finger and he has one of those uh, splints on mm-hmm. it. And then he gets in the car... <laughs> With Visser, and Visser's like, let's, he's in his little Texas accent, like, what's the matter? Stick your finger up the wrong person's ass. Oh, my God. Visser, by the way, is my favorite character. Oh, my gosh. He is. Is that not, is that acting not out of this world? I, I got to say the acting's great. It, oh, it's absolutely great. And in, in, in fact, looking back after when I was trying to gather my thoughts and, and kind of prepare for this podcast, I was thinking, like, w- there were parts were a little slow for me, and they were all parts extended lengths when Visser's not in it. That's when it started to get a little slow for me. He is such a good villain and comic relief at the same time, but he's still so menacing. And I just, the the performance was outstanding. I mean, you could not have cast that any better. Yeah, I think they got, I think they got lucky in their casting or they strategically had a good casting director Mm -hmm. or whoever, because the acting in this does help carry a lot of, the moments that do drag and are a little bit slower. I thought the acting was phenomenal. And you look at uh, M. M. Emmett Walsh, who plays Visser. I mean, his character, it's cleverly written, but under the wrong actor, it doesn't, it's not going to come across no. with, that, with that tonality. So he's great. I mean, his acting is, is next, to, next to none. He's fantastic. He ended up winning a Spirit Award for this film. I can see why. I believe. Because he Correct. he is just so. I couldn't anytime he was on screen I just loved every second of it even when uh, when he wasn't fully on screen but like when he's when he's trying to shoot through the window I just I know he's there and so I'm just I I'm far more enthralled with the scene going going on I just I loved every second of it yeah that character is a lot of fun to follow along yeah and and does kind of keep it you know what he does bring is. The entertaining factor. So I think the other acting is good. I think uh, John Getz and Francis McDormand are good actors. I think they did a great. I mean, Francis McDormand is a great actor. I really right. believe that. But but this is her first film too. Like this is her first. She had done some TV work, but she had never done a feature. So to carry that along and kind of create that, I want to get your idea on the atmosphere of how it's created because it's a crime drama thriller. And to be honest, Alan, I'm going to throw this at you because you're the expert. There are moments technically in the way that it's portrayed that are horror-esque. Absolutely. 
absolutely. In fact, Jess was sitting there watching it with me, and she jumped. Like, there were a couple jump scares that got her. And uh, and I, I just, you, there's no doubt the suspense that was built was fantastic. And the, obviously, those are the parts that I love the most. And it was just, uh, I thought it was very well done. And it, it just, I, I, it's just still so surprising. And I hate to sound like a broken record that this is their first feature. This is their first venture out because the notes that they hit, the, the, the beats that they hit, the tone, everything about it from, you know, the cinematography to the sound design, I mean, the creaking floors were so suspenseful and that's all you hear. Uh, the dripping of the faucet, every little thing that they did just created this tone that was just so perfectly done, especially towards the climax of the film. I just, it, I couldn't, I couldn't look away. So here's an interesting fact, because I think this is where they drew their inspiration or some of their thought process on how to put it together. Because even though they had not stepped on a film set, they had not even been an assistant or even visited a film set. That's crazy. But they had done some post-production work. They were assistant editors. They had done some runner stuff, some PA stuff in a post house for cutting horror films. It makes sense. In New York, right? So... Uh, uh, Ethan Cohen, the younger of the Cohen brothers, was an assistant editor or did some kind of post-production work on Sam Raimi's film. Evil Dead? Evil Dead. And for you, this was the tie-in, you know the Cohen brothers and Sam Raimi are like best buddies. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, and you, can, you can see that influence in this. You absolutely can. There is even a shot that reminded me like it was straight out of the Evil Dead. And that was, and I can't remember what it was. I, I want to say it was on the front lawn when uh, Marty is pulling Abby out of the house. And they have and you get the deadite shot. They have the deadite shot where the camera's floating and zooming towards the characters. And I, I immediately thought of Evil Dead. Yeah, they, they use, I think they used the camera really well uh, to create the suspense. And they fall in line with those stereotypical approaches that you see in that 70s, 80s horror type films. Uh, and those push-ins are one of them. There's another one towards the end, technically, that, that uh, is interesting when Abby is at the, uh, after Ray, her, her lover, has been shot by Visser. Visser's coming into the apartment and there's that real long push into the doorknob as he's trying to get into the doorknob. And it feels so much like the monster trying to get into the room. Yep, it does. You know, and it has that that essence to it. So I thought that was interesting because I want to get your opinion on that, knowing that you love horror film. And maybe I just want to make sure I wasn't up in the night. Like, is this really? But it felt like there were nuances of horror in there. And uh, it looks like they probably pulled some inspiration from their buddy, Sam Raimi. Yeah, you can definitely feel those influences. It's it's and again, obviously, that's that's those are the parts that I love the most. But um, the fact that Visser is able and we talked about his performance the fact that he's able to be so funny and jovial, but still be so menacing that you're terrified when he's about to come through that door is just, I don't want to go on and on about his performance, but it just, it takes an immensely talented actor to be able to pull off that range. Particularly to the end, because once he gets through the door and she's got to go through the window to the other side of the apartment, through the exterior window and his creeping it, walking through the bathroom and like, He's very menacing. So I think you're right. Being able to like play the range of like, you've got a, a jovial, funny kind of comedic performance mixed with a monster type 
at, uh, uh, approach. I think he does great. With and I've never seen him play a role like that. I'm not super familiar with his work. He's one of those, and, and this movie's kind of filled with with actors who where, where you would see him and be like, oh, it's that guy. He did that thing. You know, there's a lot of most of the actors, other than Francis McDormand, I would say, are, are kind of those those people. But I've never seen him play a menacing character before. Yeah, and like I said, I don't know a whole lot of his stuff either. And you go through his filmography, and he's got a lot of things that you go that we would recognize. I mean, he's got um, and you, and his face. I you would know his face. Yeah. Um, I, I do know. I mean, if, he's in Raising Arizona, so he does follow up with some of their other stuff, but. He's great. He's fantastic in the film. I think he does a, a great job. Yeah, he's outstanding. I mean, he's done so much TV work, too. And especially back in the day, I hate to say this, but it, it's almost like TV was, if you were acting in TV, it was kind of a day job. Like, it, it was kind of assumed that you weren't, you didn't have the chops to be a big screen actor. And he did a lot of TV work. And so the fact that he's able to actually show his chops in this film is great. And it's actually surprising to me that he hasn't had more big roles. I mean, other than the fact that everyone knows his face, but you can't, you can't, he's not a, a household name by any means. And I'm kind of surprised right. just based on his performance in this, that he didn't get more work. But uh, yeah, who does get more work is Francis McDormand, um, who, who eventually wins an Oscar later on. She also married uh, Joel Cohen. Um, which is kind of an interesting little tie-in. So kind of a husband-wife combo, killer combo in filmmaking. Um, tell me, so to kind of run through the story just real quickly and the plot line and, and the whole concept, we kind of covered it in the intro, but it's essentially uh, you have this, he's a real sleaze of a person and, and Marty is, and his wife, Abby, uh, obviously aren't happy. And the very first scene of the film is actually Abby with her lover, some not her lover yet, but someone that she's trying to escape with um, from her husband. They're driving a car down the highway. She alludes, by the way, to the 38 special that becomes so prevalent through the whole plot. Yep. So what we talked about this before, but they talk about on the nose. They're like, we're just going to give you the plot uh, device, the prop itself on, you know what I mean? Right. It's going to kind of run this will become a character like the 38 special is a character in the film and we're just going to introduce it by her saying that her husband gave her a 38 special on her birthday and now she's ready to use it on him basically right and, and so now they're driving down and, and she's trying to basically escape from from this nightmare marriage um and she's doing it with ray and ray is actually an employee at the bar that her husband owns and then they sleep together so they, they like, and this, this, at the beginning, they sleep together. And then of course, Marty, her husband finds out and it, it's, it, it just, it, once again, it, they're not hiding anything from you. We're just following the characters as the story transpires. But this relationship between uh, Abby, Frances McDormand and, and uh, her lover, Ray, this is a, this, I was trying to get my head around this a little bit on the story between these two characters because it's like they like each other, but then they're not sure or she's using him or, or I don't know where it, it just, they didn't gel like lovers gel. So they're not in love necessarily. They say they are. Yeah. I, they, I, I thought that opening scene of them just talking in the car, I think that was a good way to, 
to show us that maybe, you know, it's not just lust. It seems like they maybe really like each other. And uh, at least Ray likes her a lot. She, I think, is obviously looking for an escape. Um, Ray is a little bit, he's hes a little bit of, a, of an emotional roller coaster in this movie. Like, it's like, he, he's kind of taken the role that traditionally women take in, in films where it's like, Oh, I thought you wanted me to go, you know, like I'm packing up and leaving because I thought you want, it's like, dude, just, just stop being a, a wuss for a second. Like he just, he's kind of taking that role. and It's kind of bugging me. Like it, towards the end of the movie, I'm like, I'm kind of glad he's going to get killed because it's just, <laughs> he, he's just driving me crazy. But, um, I thought the relationship was, you know, it was, it was pretty good. I, I, I don't really know. Ray's motivation. I, I think this is probably another part that I had a hard time with with the film is there aren't a whole lot of likable characters other than Maurice, the other bartender. There aren't a lot of people in this film that are likable at all. I didn't find her character unlikable. I, I um, but I do, I do see what you're saying. I, I didn't find hers, but I didn't find it overly uh, willing to follow her along to the, to the ends of the earth with, with, with my viewing, right? Yeah. Like, but the other two characters are, are assholes, basically, in the, in the sense that, I mean, particularly Marty. I don't even know that Marty, actually, I take that back. I don't even know that Marty is a complete asshole because there's no exposition, like you mentioned, right. and that's okay. We don't need it. But he, he, he's definitely, I don't know. They, they kind of allude to it, right? And so we gather that he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a dick. Well, the fact that he's willing to hire a hitman at all probably says enough about his character. Obviously, this is the first time he's done it. Uh, it's not like he goes around killing people all the time. But the fact that he's able to go that far, he's, he's definitely not a likable guy. Uh, but <clears throat> the more I think about it, the more he's just a scorned husband. You know, he's just, he's well, really that's what hurting. I was going to say. It's like a, yeah, it's like a crime of passion in a sense. Right. Right, because he's so upset and so emotionally involved that his wife's cheated. Although he's a scumbag, I guess. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, he's a scumbag. I mean, uh, and Frances McDormand, Abby is, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say she's unlikable, but she's almost forgettable until the climax of the movie. And I'll tell you, I, I can go with that. I'll also say, I think that, what makes her performance good is she's not over the top. Yes. So it, it's it's nice to see a non uh, over the top. She could easily have the high pitched screams and the big jumps and her being, uh, you know, bullied into being scared and like all that. But it's not any of that. Her performance is kind of subdued, but in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and at first I didn't quite understand why especially during the climax, why she is going back into the apartment after she'd escaped and why she's not going straight to the cops until the very end when she says, I'm not afraid of you, Marty. She thinks that Visser is her husband. And so right. and that kind of brings the, that, that kind of illustrates the entire plot of this film. It's, it's almost, I, it's not a comedy of errors. It's almost a tragedy of errors. Like it's just misunderstanding after misunderstanding leading to a, a giant, uh, clusterfuck of just a bloodbath at the end. Yeah. Yeah. She, she uh, there was, the, I remember watching this a few years ago wondering, is that a plot hole? I actually wondered if that was a plot hole because she, my wife, when she was watching it, didn't know that, that 
uh, or she, she didn't know that um, Abby thought that Marty was still alive, right? Because at the end, like you just mentioned, like Abby still thinks that Marty, her husband, is alive. We, the viewer, know that he's been killed, right? But uh, Ray actually, he told her that he was that he buried him alive. And that's what I was going to get to, which is, this is where I was watching it. I remember going, wait a minute. It's one of two things. Either they just kind of didn't care <laughs> or it's possible she just didn't quite. I mean, it's still, you, it's still passable. Like you could still go, well, she didn't hear what he said or she didn't understand or she didn't know if he was telling the truth or all these things. Or maybe things. Marty got out. Or maybe, yeah. I mean, but at the same time, I thought the same thing, which was like, wait a minute. I thought Ray told her that he buried him. Right. And so she had believed. And, 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 and like I say, it doesn't actually create a complete, I don't think it does, a complete hole in the story. But it does make you go, wait a minute. Did they miss something there? Right. Did the all two perfect Coen brothers miss something in their own story? <laughs> well, I mean, it would explain if she thought that he got out, that he dug his way out. It would explain why he's coming back with a vengeance trying to murder everybody. Right. Right. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. One thing it was one more thing I'm going to say about Visser and, and, the, and his menacing nature is that even when he's trapped and he's got his, his hand pinned uh, under a closed window and a knife right through it stabbed into the window sill, he's still very terrifying. Like he's still punching his way through the wall to get to her. And that also was a very horror esque scene. And it, it and again, I don't want to go on and on about his performance, but the fact that you can see him in peril and you're still terrified that he's going to escape and wreak vengeance on hers is it's pretty scary. But that scene's great, and it is shot like a horror film. I had a practical. I always get so practical in my head, so it's not always a good thing because I think it can deter you from enjoying certain things. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I, I, I got a little too practical because when I watched it again, I thought, well, Visser's shooting his gun through the wall, and what he's trying to do, it sounds like or feels like, is that he's trying to kind of loosen up the sheetrock so he can punch his way through. That makes sense. I get that. Where I had a, and it's shot beautifully. I loved how it was shot yeah. with the beams of light coming through as the gun gunshots come through the wall and she's on the other side. And like you mentioned, it's very terrifying. It's very horror-esque. But I had a practical problem with it, which was his gunshots are all over the map. Right. So either, and this is, then my other practical, I so said, why is he shooting like way up here? How is he even reaching over right, there right. in the yeah. first place? Or like, because his, his right hand's caught it on the, on the windowsill, stabbed in. His left hand is the one shooting. But the holes are like, one's over here, one's down here, one's over here. They're so sporadic. I thought, well, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Why are there, why is he, shoot, why wouldn't he concentrate the bullets in one area and then punch through? Dude. But maybe that was just me being overly practical. Well, you're, I mean. I, I no, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, your range of motion is going to be severely limited if your hand <laughs> is is knifed to a windowsill in a in a separate apartment. Every in every not inch every every millimeter 
that you move, you're going to feel it. I didn't even think about that. It's going to be agonizing pain. And not only that, the window's broken where his face is, is up against a window and that window's broken. I don't remember when it got broken, but it did. And it's cut. It looks like it's cutting into his ear. Or yeah, like behind it's got him. the side of his exactly. Ear. It's so a, look, it's a great scene. I'm not trying to drag down the 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 fun of it because I think it's well done. I really do. But the practicality of it was a little. But then again, like a lot of horror films or, or thrillers, or whatever you want to, they're not always practical. Right. They're not right. always going to follow. Right. So you got to have a little suspension of disbelief at some point. That's right. right. But I will remember this podcast as the day I broke the Coen Brothers logic. <laughs> you might have to rename your son now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, they messed up on Blood Simple. They made a mistake. Your name is no longer Cohen. Your name is Kubrick. It's Kubrick. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, great. We, we mentioned his performance. I think it's great. But then also, um, tell me, tell me your... Dive into a scene that, that seems memorable to you that you enjoyed most. We just kind of covered one, which I think is fantastically done. Is there another one that stands out that you think uh, drew your attention or that caught your eye? There was a shot. It was actually kind of a sequence of shots. when It's after um, Marty has escaped the car. So uh, uh, Ray thinks that Marty's dead. He's put him in the, in the back of the car. And originally I thought that Marty was or, or that Ray was covering up the murder because everyone would think he's the suspect because he is sleeping with Marty's wife. And there's obviously a public feud about it. Uh, I didn't realize at the time and I should have that he was trying to cover it up for for Francis McDormand. For her. Yeah. yeah. For Abby. He, he was. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time. But anyway. There's a scene where, or a couple shots where uh, Marty escapes the car and he is kind of crawling on the ground and Ray is trying to muster up the courage to murder him, to kill him. First, he, he thinks he's going to hit him with the car. Then he thinks he's going to beat him over the head with a shovel and he can't bring himself to do either. So, and by the way, the whole thing with the truck coming down the road um, he gets he gets him in the car way too late. We can see the front of that truck. You're telling me that truck cannot see that Ray is carrying a body and sh- trying to shove it into the car. So that that anyway, that's that's a, a little nitpick. But I was like, you got to be kidding me! Like he's busted already. But, but that shot, that shot when the truck passes and you get that backlight, yeah. And there's a silhouette of Ray against the backlight of the truck passing. By the way, Barry Sonnenfeld, great shot. Nice work. And, and actually, that leads to what I was going to say next. It cuts to a shot. It's a tracking shot, and it goes from the headlights. And it's, so, it's such a beautiful shot. And the way that they – I don't know how. I would love to see the lighting diagram of this because it's in the middle of the night. It's not too bright, but it's not too dark. There, it's enough to see the details in the dirt. But the, the, the shot tracks from – the headlight of the car and it pans over not pans but it tracks over to the hole that ray has dug to put um marty in and i just thought that shot was so beautifully done particularly because this was barry sonnenfield's first feature i think as well if i'm not mistaken so the yeah. fact that they were able to create such a beautiful shot in difficult circumstances if you ever shot at night it's not an easy thing to do and, really and especially in a dirt field like that, it's got to be a nightmare. So the fact that they created that was was gorgeous. B- 
But then when he is burying Marty alive and he is just dumping that dirt right on his face. I mean, they didn't pull any punches to, to protect the actor at all. I just thought that was so well done. And, and where uh, even before he starts burying him and Marty points the gun at him and it's click. And then he pulls the trigger again. Click pulls it for a third time click and and Ray's just slowly reaching over for the gun and you're just praying there's not a bullet in there you know if yeah. if I was in that situation I'm kicking that gun out of the way like I'm not I'm not slowly going to grab it and it was just the suspense in that scene was so well done and it was such a minor thing and it just it just goes to show how how great it, with the right lighting the right atmosphere you can create such such suspense was so I mean it was just such a minimal sequence but it was done so beautifully yeah I, you're like oh, I want to see that how they did that with that lighting they didn't have a lighting diagram well they didn't know it but, but well how did they I don't how did they do it though because it looks so I, I don't know I that's what I mean I I, I saw an interview years ago and I, I'll probably mess it up but it was with Barry Sonnenfeld and for those listening Barry Sonnenfeld became quite a prominent director himself and did a lot of blockbusters like Men in Black and things like that. He started out as he was their director of photography, as you mentioned. And I saw an interview with him. He did the first, I think, three Coen Brother films as their DP. And he had never DP'd a film before. He was a photographer. He had done still photography, but he'd never done director of photography for motion picture. And he said in the interview, he said, we didn't know what we were doing. And he, he said, when we did Raising Arizona, which is their follow-up film, which, by the way, is fantastic, their follow-up film, Raising Arizona, he said, I still didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> so I just threw a 21-millimeter lens on and just shot the whole thing in that. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know what? And that's, that's actually a really good lesson for any up-and-coming filmmakers. You don't have to have everything super deliberate. Sometimes... You just run and gun and you just, you just do it. Just make it happen. If you watch Raising Arizona, you're like, oh yeah, those are all pretty wide shots. Yeah. Like mostly just wide shots. And even the close-ups have the distorted wide angle right, a little bit. Right. So anyway, I, but you're, you're, I, I know what you're saying because you want to see how they structurally put. I love those. There's a, 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 an Instagram feed that has cinematic effects and they draw out light diagrams on how they light certain scenes. It's really cool. So I'm with you. It's cool to see how they build it. But my thought is if you were to ask Joel or Ethan Cohen, they're like, we didn't have a lighting diagram. We were just trying to shoot it that night before we couldn't yeah, shoot it again. Probably. I mean, <laughs> they, they had the, the, the practical headlights and, and they probably had one other, one other kit. Yeah. Maybe something else to, to throw up, but, but that is a great scene. It's, it's really beautifully done. I, um, one shot, the thing that I that I do like technically about this is for a first time filmmaker, I thought their transitions were amazing. Mm -hmm. The way that they because it as an editor, that's like you're I would I always tell students like if you want to be a director or you're you want to be directing, like maybe you should edit for a while because ultimately you learn a little bit about story, you learn a little bit about structure, but you also learn about transitioning scenes. And you become so when you're on set, you know in your head how the scene transitions, and editing can help do that. I, this explains to me at least why these guys become such prominent editors like they edit all their own films, but they have that editorial mind, which is like, How do I take a scene from 
either this location to another location and keep the story seamless as I go through. There's a shot in there that I think exemplifies what I'm talking about with Frances McDormand when she goes to the bar and she sees the dead fish and she sees all the kind of curious things that are going on. And it's a close up of her um, trying to put two and two together. She's trying to figure it out. And then she kind of slightly starts to move back. A shadow crumbs across her face. When it, on the other side of the cut, when the shadow rolls back, she's falling into bed. And yeah. I love that transition as a filmmaker, like as a, I, as a creative, like I go, I love the idea that they had thought about how they were going to transition this scene. Cause you can't do that without thinking on the other side, cause it's filmed in two different locations or at least in two different setups that this is how we're going to do it. We're going to use a, a contrasty shadow as almost like a dissolve between two shots that are the same composition. And I love that. I love that shot. And I think they do stuff like that transitionally really well throughout the whole film from the editor's side. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that, that one was uh, creatively, I absolutely love it, but it did take me out of it a little bit. It, it, it was a, it was, I like transitions. If it's going to be a, like a super, if, if, if it's going to be a movie, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of one off the top of my head, but if it's going to be a movie that, that, lets you know and that's kind of part of the, the cinematic world they built where you're going to have crazy good transitions like that then i'm all for it but to me it took me out of it creatively i love it it just it was enough it was jarring enough to make to remind me that it's a film if that makes sense yeah 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 yep absolutely but uh, i think um, I, I think something like that could really fit well in the right in the right film and it was really i i love to see to know how they plan that too especially and again their first film, you know, and they're coming up with stuff that, like that's this. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest takeaway is like, the, who, who's thinking about, no, no one in their first film thinking about this. Like even in Spike's film, we did She's Gotta Have It. We did Scorsese's film. Like, let's just be honest. None of them are at the caliber technically that these guys were for never even having it's stepped crazy. on a film set. It's so. crazy. What about you? What's the scene that, that stuck out to you? I mean, I, I love how it climaxes and ends it, it, it you know, particularly just kind of uh, where she's the victor and she kind of gets what she wants. Like, I'm actually all for it. I mean, one thing we've neglected to mention is like this story in and of itself is very film noir. Like it's very uh, um, kind of black widow. There's a femme fatale who's in quote unquote danger, although she's not because she can in some ways take care of herself. And at the end, she does. And the person, the man who was trying to take care of her ends up dying. And the man that was trying to, was pushing her away also dies and she lives, right? And it's very film noir in that sense. Um, I think structurally is a story, but I think the end scene uh, really stands out. And I, and I honestly just love anything that was shot in Marty's office with the neon lighting surrounding the whole environment. Um, I loved the scene between Marty and, and once again, if you know, Visser with uh, M. Emmett, uh, he, Watson, uh, he does, or Walsh, he does so good in those scenes, but I just like the neon feel of it. It's very 80s. Yeah. You know, like I have my neon light back there. I, I know, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a great homage. It's, it's, I just like that look and it very much 
it, because it's so beautifully shot, anything that's kind of in Marty's office at the bar is kind of cool, you know? I also think, and I'll go from an editorial standpoint again, that, and now here it comes, Alan, the avalanche of Cohen-esque love is just, admiration is just going to be coming it's at snowballing. you. And I don't care. Bring it, bring it back so we can, we can fight over it. Let's get an argument about it. <laughs> but <laughs> the, the editorial on this, if you, one thing about Coen Brother films that I love, and it's done in this one too, is I literally think they are the masters, okay, at single shot reverses. So single shot character, single shot character, back and forth, the teeter-totter between two characters, the subtlety of pacing, um, a little bit of slips with some pre-lapse and post-lapse, but ultimately I think they're so good at simple all right, no pun intended. And so <laughs> the ability to take character, character, back and forth, back and forth, and do it for a pretty extended uh, length of time, mm-hmm. and for me, not be boring. So the office scene with Marty and, and, um, and Visser, but the car scene too, when they're plotting the homicide, the murders um, of, of his wife and Ray, in that car, the back and forth, you right. know, like the back and forth. I think they're good at setting up comedy and then bringing in a seriousness. So, but they use just the back and forth editing, the shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot. But it's so well balanced. I think that it, it, it makes it for me engaging to watch the characters unfold. And in those cases, they don't need any technical uh, prowess to make it inter- to make it engaging for me. I, I mean, you said something about uh, transitioning from from comedy to dramatic and almost menacing. They do it flawlessly too, just flawlessly. Like it's it's not clunky, it's not out of place. The pacing's still perfect. Uh, it's done very well editorially for sure. You think of that scene with them plotting in the car, and when. Marty gets in the car and Visser's in there already and he presses his little dolly that's hanging down from his rear view window. His, and it's got a naked, it looks like a half Barbie. Yeah. The top of a yeah. Barbie, but it lights up on the nipples. Yep. Oh my God. He, I, and just even before that, my favorite, I think my favorite scene of Visser is when he's talking to that, that girl as Marty's walking up to the car. And just his reaction, it's just so freaking funny. I don't know what, I don't know how he decided to go that route with it. Because he went, like, he, like whatever the discussion they were having, he thought it was hilarious. He thought it was the funniest oh. thing ever. Yeah. And I, the, discussion, the discussion was, he tells, I remember because he, he tells Marty, oh, she, she thought I, I was rolling a cigarette. She thought I was rolling a doob. So... <laughs> And then something like that. And then I don't know what else he it, says, but you're right. There, he thinks it's funny. It, the whole it's thing almost is like he was smoking a dude before they shot that scene because he's just, he, he just the jovial <laughs> nature of it is hilarious. Uh, do you think they just threw a bunch of flies at Visser because there were just flies crawling all over his <laughs> face? Uh, and I, the first time in the car, it, it seemed like an accident because it's, it's, it's on his head. Like the flies just stick into his head. And they're dripping with sweat because it's so hot. Uh, I love, but I will say atmospherically, I love how they create the environment. I mean, it feels like hell. Oh. It feels hot and humid in Texas. 
I mean, and, we talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how you could just feel the heat coming. Yeah. Like, it felt the same way for me, this movie. You could just, they're dripping sweat, and it's just disgusting, and you just feel sweaty and gross, and I felt like I needed to take a shower. And and then you add on to that the bugs, the flies, like you're saying. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if it was coincidence. I It happens once in the car, and then it happens again at the bar. Yeah in the office and there's a, and, and they play to the sound effect. They just, yeah, they, they, they did just, a little bit of Foley for the, for the buzz in the, in the office for sure. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. great. But atmospherically, and that's one thing I'll go back to is environmentally atmospherically. Like they really create the atmospheres. Like they're, they're, these are dudes from Minnesota. So how do they know what Texas feels like? And I just applaud them in the sense that you figured it out. If, if you look at their, this is where they have a little range for me, which is like you watch their films and everywhere is changing atmosphere. You have Fargo going the, to the north, which is where they're from. So they should hit that one on the head. But Arizona has, it feels like Arizona. It feels like Texas. No country feels like Texas. Um, Miller's Crossing has that East Coast vibe. So like, they're able to play the range of atmosphere and do it really well and make it a character, but in a subtle way where it's not in your face. It's just there and it feels right. Definitely. I mean, even uh, Big Lebowski, it, it feels like L.A., you know, like it really does feel like L.A. I mean, you've lived there, so you would probably know better than me. But when I've been to L.A., that's I mean, it just it's how it is. It feels like LA, but 100%. They don't, they, you know, they don't go out, out, you know, way out of their way to show the Hollywood sign and do all the touristy stuff. But you just, you just know, you just feel it. Think of a burn after reading. You're like, oh, I'm at the nation's capital. Right. Like it yeah. feels like DC. Right. You know, the people, the interaction, the snottiness of whoever yep. it is, the political viewpoints, like it all just kind of fits in. So I think they're, that's where I also like is their range. And, and so maybe where they misstep on, the absolute passion of following a character and like really driving home, like someone we can root for. They do so well on the other things that keeps me afloat. Uh, by the way, M. Emmett Walsh is in Knives Out. Did you ever see Knives no, Out? No, I just saw it's on Prime. And so that is, that's it. what I'm watching this weekend. Go watch it. I, uh, side note to this, I loved it. I thought it was great. Every, every single person I've talked to who has seen it just raves about it. Fun kind of murder mystery, traditional, uh, feels very much like a, a contemporary clue, but better. How is he still alive? Man, he's got to be hanging on to life. It looks like he's was born in like 35 or something like that. So he's 90 plus. Well, Jess even said when, when, when he popped on screen, she's like, he was old even back then. And this is like 36 years ago. <laughs> This is 1984. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so I think we've kind of walked through it and talked about it. Like, I think we've, we've kind of went on our tangents. I wanted to hear a little more rebuttal from you about this, but you, you started, you started coming in. I like, I like, I like basically Obi-Wan Kenobi. G. Yeah, you kind of did. Like, God damn it. You totally did. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, and it's not, again, it, it's hard for me. My, I guess my biggest criticism about the Coen brothers is that I don't care enough about the, they don't make me care enough about their films to really revere them. If that makes sense. Yeah. Other than the ones that I talked about, like it's they're they're, they're good, but it's just not, I, I'm, it's not, it doesn't leave a lasting impression on me for the most part. 
Go watch, but but once again, I think if go watch, um, have you seen Miller's Crossing? No, I have not seen that one. So this is one. I think this is an underrated film that they've made. I believe it's their third film, and I think it's underrated. Like there's a couple. Look, here's the thing about it, Alan. For me, there's a few films in there in this portfolio of theirs that they tank on. Like, why did we make Intolerable Cruelty? Yeah, I didn't even bother didn't, seeing that one. Um, I think that was a, a play for someone asked them to do it and they had to commit. I don't know what it was because they've kind of established themselves as filmmakers who kind of do what they want. Yes. In other words, they don't do a whole lot of, oh, the studio asked me to be a director on this and now, I, now I'm going to do it for a money grab. They don't ever, to me, come across that way. And I think there's a certain level of respect in that regard too. That's kind of cool because when you're counterculture enough in the sense that you can do what you want to do in a big system like that. Right. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Right. Well, have you seen Hail Caesar? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, it was good. But I, but I liked it because I'm a film guy and I like the homages. That to me, that was the that was the entire appeal of that movie. Cause I I walked out of that being like, I love because it, it really does, and this is a super big cliche, but it really does feel like a love letter to cinema as a whole. And I love no, that I, about it. I think that's why I liked it. And that was the primary reason. And so I actually watched that at the Cinerama Dome on Sunset Boulevard <laughs> in Hollywood. And I walked out for that reason. And I said to myself, I liked it because yeah. it was a pat on the back. To, I, and I wouldn't expect that out of them either. It doesn't. And they still kind of did it in their own tone. Right, right. So... Um, it was, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know if you saw once upon a time in Hollywood, but it's also kind of a pat on the back atmospherically to Hollywood, sure. but it's in the Tarantino vibe and I liked it. So, um, here's, here's the, here's the thing, uh, that I, that, uh, I want, I want to get your final summary of the film and also just overall, Coen Brothers. I'm going to tell you right now. I know this will not be the last Coen Brothers film that we do. I'm I'm fine with that. I I honestly I want to, I want to see what people see in them. Like I want to get to that point where I I can at least under even if I don't agree, I want to at least be able to understand why they're so revered. Watch. I think it's once again their craftiness, their execution, the craftsmanship of what they do. Go when you watch Miller's Crossing. There's a scene in there where the background song is Danny Boy. Okay. Oh, Danny. Boy. Right. And it's done with these mobsters or, or mobs, uh, mobsters going after uh, a, fel- uh, you know, a, a rival leader. But the way that it's put together is so good. It, I, just editorially, the filming of it, the, the way they have the song in the background, the classical kind of gangster using machine guns, the over the top. You know, when someone gets shot in a machine gun and they're like splattering yeah. everywhere and their arms are flailing, they do it, but they do it intentionally. Right. And it still feels kind of real. But go watch. I, I don't know. Maybe you won't like Miller's Crossing. It's a little slower. So, but it's uh, it's got Steve Buscemi. So well, that's always go. good. I will say I love that they produce Bad Santa. That's one of my all time favorite movies. Now, I did not know they produced it. Yeah. I, I found that out like after years after loving Bad Santa, I found I watched it again, and I saw that they were in the credits for, as producers. So I was all I mean, you know, that's what made me want to love them even more because it's 
and Bad Santa is a great movie, but the the they have so many different cuts of that movie. But the one that was titled Batter Santa is the ultimate cut. Like to me, that really tells the redemption story of, of that. And we, I mean, that's something we could talk about another time. But you really, they really missed the the boat on on showing the true redemption of of drunk Billy Bob Thornton. Well, we need to uh, put Bad Santa on our yeah, Christmas special because we'll I also love that movie. But then it's just going to be us bloviating about how cool Bad Santa is. Just like with Caddyshack, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Hey, man. But uh, so, yeah, I didn't know they produced that. But they've also done a lot of other things, uh, both uh, writing. The I think the most recent that would uh, had, that had got some accolades was um, Bridge of Spies, the Steven Spielberg film. They wrote that film. I believe it won an Academy Award, but I'm not sure. Um, so they, they've done a lot of other things. They're executive producers on Fargo, the TV series. I don't think they do anything with it. I just think they put their name on it because it's their credit. characters. Yeah. I hear that's phenomenal. I haven't watched it. Season one and two are the only one. They're fantastic. Okay. They're so good. I mean, we talked, you were, you were alluding to TV being kind of, and it is, right? Like TV in the 80s was like the underling to film. Right. But now that's not the case. Not at all. Right. Not at all. And so Fargo is an example of why that's not the case. It's one of those kind of TV series. Um, there was a... Oh, yeah. I had a tie-in for you because we both love Cheers. Uh-huh. So I love Cheers enough. I've seen the series a couple times all the way through. And then watched multiple episodes just sporadically. Dan Hedaya, right? Remember Dan yep. uh, Dan Hedaya, who's the who plays Marty in um, in Blood Simple, is in Cheers. He is in Cheers. What is he? Who is he? He is. I'm ch- I'm, I'm I'm gonna see if you can uh, guess. Okay, it. it's been and it just I I haven't watched I, Cheers I like you. Like it's I just love it, and I remember loving it when I was younger. It's been a minute since I've seen it. I'll give you, I'll tell you, it, Carla's husband. husband. I knew it. Yes. Yes. Carla's husband. Oh, Carla's I knew it too, as soon as you started cheers. to say it. Yep. So there's our cheers tie. Let's see how many times we can tie cheers into our, our podcast. I, I bet you we can do it a lot. Now that we're thinking I about it, I, every podcast is going to turn into cheers of love. <laughs> it's a great show. It is. Um, it's objectively funny. Like it's objectively, even if you don't like sitcoms, cheers is objectively funny. It is. It is. And it's a great premise, too. Yeah. It's just a bar with guy with not guys, but people. Right. Right. Um, give me, okay, th- give me your outro. Give me your final summation on Blood Simple and uh, your rating on this film. I think, uh, I, don't, I won't belabor it too much. I think I kind of hit all, my, all the points I wanted to hit. I don't, uh, again, I don't hate the Coen Brothers films at all. I think they're good. I, this is, of the ones that I've seen, I haven't seen all their work, but the ones I've seen, this is this is one of the better ones for sure. I was, I was, I didn't get lost nearly as much. And when I say lost, I don't mean I don't understand the plot. I mean they didn't lose me at any point. Bored. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but there were still some slow parts. You know, a couple things we talked about. But overall, I thought it was good. The climax I thought was fantastic, and obviously Visser was a fantastic character. I'm gonna go seven point one. Oh man, I didn't even think about this. Usually, I think about it. I'm seven point one Volkswagen Bugs. Nice. That's a good. 
that's a good in, uh, insider prop. Yeah. So yeah. when you watch the movie, be on the lookout for the for the the VW bug. Because it's, as uh, and that's one thing I did want to talk about, not talk about, but mention. As you see that car more, you get a little bit more uneasy every time you see it. The car's menacing. It is really menacing. And you menacing. know that Visser's inside of it. There is that one shot, though, when she wakes up in a nightmare and you see outside the window. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? She, she leans up into the camera frame and then the car's not there. And when she leans down, boom, it, the, car's the car's there. there. That's so horror it film. Is. It's not even fun. Well, and the fact that it's a Volkswagen bug, it almost is, is a, a perfect embodiment of Visser as a whole because it's a comedic car. Like what was that old? There was an old movie, like a Disney Herbie. Herbie, yeah. Like it's you know, it's not a serious car. It's not a menacing car. We're not talking about Carrie here, or uh, not Carrie. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can't remember the the Stephen King movie about the the killer car. I can't remember. Oh, Christine. It's a yes, Christine. Christine. We're not talking about that. You know, we're, we're talking about a a a Volkswagen Beetle, and the fact that they have turned that into a menacing thing is pretty spectacular. It's a perfect embodiment of Visser. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you're going to you got it at seven point one VW bugs. Yep. I'm actually I actually that's not a bad uh, score. I actually I I thought you might even go a tinge higher only because it has horror nuances in it. I I was kind of going back and forth. Originally, I was going to go six point seven, but again, as we have talked about many times, talking through it made me appreciate it a lot more. And you Obi Wan the shit out of me. So, uh, <laughs> well, I'm going to D Obi-Wan you here because, uh, Ethan Cohen has some things to say about his own film. Oh man. He's going to sink my ship. <laughs> um, by the way, the title was inspired by a Hammett red harvest, which is a novel. Um, blood simple just simply means like, uh, like slang for like meaning going crazy, uh, murderous after, you know, uh, <clears throat> Revenge or whatever it might be. Um, that's what it. That's where the title came from. Um, here's something that's kind of cool, though. The Cohen specifically wrote the part for uh, Lauren Visser for the PI for Visser for M. Emmett Walsh. They wrote it for Good. him. Um, and like you said, I don't think anyone could have played it that way. Yeah, and those always seemed. Those are. That's always fascinating to me too, though. As as someone who I'm not a writer, but I like writing. It always is fascinating to me that you take a character and write it for a specific actor, and then when you get that actor, it just totally kills. Yeah, they they almost become a they almost become the role. Like that's pretty good, but I mean that's pretty good. What's the word like? In, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Insight, predilection, or, or instinct, yeah. or something. Right? That yeah. Um, here's the one that we were alluding to before the Coens and many of the cast and crew had never been on a film set before funny here's what he said Joel Cohen said the first day of shooting on Blood Simple was the first time I'd ever been on a feature movie set in any capacity even as a visitor Cohen had and here's the research that I was telling you before Cohen had previously worked as an assistant editor on horror films including 81's Evil Dead. Um, and then Cohen mentioned how Sonnenfeld, the, the uh, DP, the director of photography, would throw up after looking at dailies because he was so nervous working on the film. 
Oh my God, that's hilarious. He said the gaffer had never gaffed. The sound guy had never mixed. That's a that's <laughs> a had, dangerous and, one. I will say that. That's a, if you're, and if you're he going never in with an amateur. Those were his quotes. Like a, a full on inexperienced green sound mixer. You are you are gambling. That's a that's a. I have to question that. That was that real? I don't know because you know what? This, I thought the sound was great. I thought well, that's what I mean. For all those things considered, how do you get that movie? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know how else. Other than we know that I thought the acting, as we mentioned, was fin- was fantastic. Um, a couple other little facts here. Um, they this. I think you'll enjoy this. They kind of borrowed an investment strategy from Sam Raimi. Yeah, I, so, I, I'm not familiar with the investment strategy so of Sam Raimi. He sh- well, he sh- uh, sh- he shot a trailer. Oh, I didn't know. For Evil Dead? For Evil Dead. So the idea would be like, I'll shoot a trailer and then I'll show this to potential investors as a, as a highlight reel to in, you know, encourage them to invest in the bigger thing. Um, they also did that um, uh, and shot and, and they said, um, I guess too, and I didn't know this, but this was a common thing that filmmakers would do in the 80s for exploitation films and or or horror films like something like uh, Evil Dead, and they would shoot horror t- or sorry, they would shoot trailers, and that's how they would try to get the distributors to to jump on board. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Makes sense. Um, kind of a funny quote that I thought was was funny. Uh, Ethan said that they didn't know many people, so we figured if we if you call up people and say can i give you a 10 can i can you give me 10 minutes so i can present an opportunity to invest in a movie they're going to say no i don't need that <laughs> and they're going to hang up the phone but he figured out if if he asked people and these were i don't know who they were but i'm literally guessing these were people that their family knew that they knew in new york that they knew in minnesota dentists whatever right. it was people who had money he said, if I said, can I come over and take 10 minutes to show you a piece of film? They were all of a sudden intrigued. It said they eventually got 65 investors and each investor made a profit. Yeah. Can you imagine being an investor in this movie? Or or Crazy. or the Evil Dead. Like imagine being a, a, one of those initial investors in Evil Dead. And now it's such a huge horror franchise. It's franchise. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Well, 65 investors. I've worked on a couple. Yeah. I've worked on editorially and then co-producer on a couple features and we had maybe three investors. Can you imagine 65? That's crazy. That's 65 people you have to answer to essentially. Well, they were happy because they ultimately got answered (laughs) correctly because they, they did pretty well. At least they did. Okay. They got their money back. So, um, They started shopping the film in 84. Warner Brothers rejected it. Um, They took it all over LA. They took it to every uh, distributor they could think of, even the low, like all the Crown International and all the places that do like B movies and like some soft porn. (laughs) They took it everywhere. And they said, everyone came back and said, if you have some nudity, uh, we can maybe put it in our distribution uh, portfolio. So... Um, they obviously didn't do that. So props to them because they, 
didn't think it fit into the film. Which is interesting because um, I think it, 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 they could have done it and still serve the story. Yeah, I mean, there's moments where they could have probably put that in and it wouldn't have right. distracted from what the overall story was. Um, but the Toronto Film Festival got a screening and um, they, they were picked up by Circle Films based on their screening at Toronto. Like I mentioned in the opening, the podcast, it did win the grand jury prize at, at the 85 Sundance Film Festival. Here's the one I wanted to tell you. Um, <laughs> a fact from the Coens think the movie is pretty damn bad. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I, okay, if I'm a filmmaker or an artist in general, and I've come a long way, and I've, I've you know, more or less perfected my craft and become very good at it, I imagine it's hard to look back at your early stuff. You're going to see all the flaws. I mean, even now, a- anyone looks at their, their work and they see flaws. So I would the imagine way, that they're looking back and seeing everything wrong with it. That's true. And the way that, of course, I can't compare to, to them, but everyone, you know, I've made uh, half a dozen short films. If I look at my first short film, which actually saw some success, but it was really shitty. <laughs> right versus versus like the last one I did that was good it was decent you know what I mean mm-hmm. even in that little comparison there is growth and you would always look back on your first film as like eh, it's kind of shitty right so I don't know that I would take to heart exactly what he says although here's his quote that I think is funny he said uh in a in a he uh he reflects on it this is Ethan Cohen says it's crude there's no getting around it on the other hand, it's all confused with the actual process of making the movie and finishing the movie. Uh, by and large, it was a positive experience. And then he says, you never get entirely divorced from it that way. So the things that he learned and got, got from it, he, he definitely uh, pays tribute to. But then he says, but I don't know. It's a movie that I have certain affection for, but I think it's pretty damn bad. <laughs> It's not fair, though, because now you've gone and made films that everyone applauds right. at the highest level. Although, when you swing out the gate as the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival, like... There's no way... I mean, objectively, you can't look at a film that, that won the Grand Jury Prize and say, it's pretty damn bad. Unless it's your Unless own. Unless it's your own. That's it. Yep. I guess. Um, so, anyway, some, some funny facts. Uh, we've already talked about it, you know my uh, infatuation with the Coen brothers. Um, 7.6 on IMDb. 94% from the critics on Rotten Tomatoes. 88% from the audience on, on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's pretty high. But he still calls it uh, pretty damn bad. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're just self-deprecating. I know. But still, that's funny. So, you know, in the, the catalog of Coen Brothers films, um, and, and there's a lot, there's a lot of good for me, and you had mentioned some, but for me, there's a lot of them that kind of go underrated. There's a few that aren't that good, and I'll say that, but they're few and far between. Um, there are some ones that are underrated for me or that aren't maybe as well known. I think a lot of people kind of know Raising Arizona. They know The Big Lebowski, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, of course, No Country, um, you know, but 
there's a couple in there that I, I love Big Lebowski. That's definitely in the top three. But there's one that I really love, and I don't I wouldn't rate it, but I love Raising Arizona. But right right after that, they did Barton Fink. Have you ever seen Barton I Fink? I have. That was that was one that turned me on them, actually. You you didn't I can see why you didn't like it, because we discussed this I love it. I wanted to like it. I really wanted to. Uh, and it's partly because I just love the little the little knock at Hollywood, but also love John Turturro. I think he's great in it. Well, my favorite part is John Goodman. My, I mean, any any movie he's gr- that he's John gr- Goodman's in, it's he's gonna be my favorite part of that movie, no matter what. Absolutely. Um, and he's great. And you raising Arizona, and and uh, Oh Brother, we're out there. Like As anything Cyclops, that he appears yeah. in. Big Lebowski, yeah. obviously. I mean, without that, Big that may be his greatest role. <laughs> Walter that definitely deserves its own podcast it really does like that he is so fucking funny in that oh my god line <laughs> pulls a gun out <laughs> over the line it's a league game Smokey <laughs> line I can't, I can't this isn't numb there are rules Smokey <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh um Miller's Crossing, I mentioned that one to you. I think you should watch it. It might fall in the same category as a little bit slow, but I think with it'll anybody listening and, and if you want to if you want to watch it, the thing about it is it alludes to their craftiness again. So um, and their range, like they're able to do comedy and then go do a gangster film and then do a complete absurd comedy and then a little bit of a thriller and then something kind of dark like No Country. So they're kind of all over in their range. And for that, I, I applaud them. Um, I do love, I love uh, the theme that they, that they, that they do a lot of, of a regular person kind of being sucked into dangerous circumstances. I like that. I think that as a plot point is very interesting. Yeah, I think it goes back to the characters, which is like, they, they're not really over the top. They're all pretty believable. They feel real. They feel authentic, like they're actual real life characters and even when they're nick cage in raising arizona that's a that feels like i've seen that guy at a gas station right before. yes yes <laughs> so I, I i always always you're right I, I there's something about the way that they make ordinary people feel real or feel like people we've seen or experienced in our own lives um so with my with my rating i'm gonna go uh this is I, I'm not going to rate Coen Brothers films right now. That's something that takes, for me, that takes way more research and, and time. Um, this is somewhere in the middle. Um, and I'm going to go with a, uh, an 8.7 on this film, Finger Splints. Oh, that's a good one. Shit, I wish I would have thought of that one. 8.7, that's, that's, that's high. There's now that's backed also by the fact is it their best film? No, but is once again part of what the podcast is about is we're exploring filmmakers, first time directors. I, I can't, I'm probably giving them 0.7 or 0.8 points just based on the fact that this is their first movie they've ever made. That you know what, that's a good point. I think I might revise mine. I'm going 7.4. Giving them that extra, I am or because that that is tenths. that is a really good point because the fact that they did this and had never stepped on a feature film set before, and this is what came out of it, 
is is extremely impressive. I can't, I can't, that you can't overstate that. Look, Alan, some people were just born to make movies. That's true. LeBron James was just born to play ball. Couldn't do anything else. I mean, he could probably do other things. He probably could, know. but not as well. But he's born to play ball. He is. And he's the best. So uh, I just compared the Coen brothers in the filmmaking world to the LeBron James of basketball. <laughs> so does that mean that Kubrick is Michael Jordan for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great. There it is. I j- we just nailed it. Yeah. So now, now you got to have the debate with yourself of which one's the greatest of all time. Well, right now, because we watched The Last Dance, I immediately got nostalgic. And like we talked about earlier off the podcast, I was like, Jordan's the good. Yep, for sure. Same, same thing. And there were times, and, and, and I, I think you alluded to this too, but there were times in the last decade, last five years, maybe, I was like, I would, even me who grew up with Jordan was like, LeBron might be the best. I, I, I mean, this isn't a sports show, but there was a point there where I was like, I don't, I don't think he's the greatest of all time now, but I don't see how he retires and doesn't have that title. But now, again, after watching The Last Dance, I'm like, man, I don't know how you beat Jordan. You don't. So you're going, you're going Kubrick over the Coens. Yeah. I mean, but that's still pretty good. That's very good. I mean, I'm saying that Kubrick's Jordan and the Coens are LeBron. Like, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I mean, Kubrick was was a uh, – he was another level. Like, his brain worked in a different way than everybody else. He also – and we were talking about the Coen brothers not falling into the fold and the structure of Hollywood, which they don't. They do what they want. Right. He really did what he wanted. <laughs> yes, he did. On another, like, Coen Brothers, okay, Intolerable Cruelty. Okay, Hell Caesar. Okay, uh, Bridge of Spies, which is a writing gig for Spielberg. And they're good writers, so they can write. They, you know what I mean? They're still kind of, Kubrick's like, I only do what I want to do. And I only, like, it's like a whole nother level. And I don't care if you don't even understand what it means. I don't even care. <laughs> it doesn't like, matter to you. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. Fuck what you think. <laughs> I make movies and you can eat shit. <laughs> If I want to start out with 20 minutes of apes uh, throwing bones around, I don't give a and shit a, what you think about it. And, a, and, a, and an unexplainable monolith? Okay, whatever. <laughs> and then if I want to end the movie with Dave as a baby, then I'll do that. <laughs> anyway, um, Blood Simple is a film to definitely watch. Go check it out. Uh, I think it falls in the middle tier of their, of their work over the last 30 plus years. But uh, that's kind of where I sit on it. Alan, came, you came in at 7.4? 7.4, final answer. 7.4, final answer. He did make an adjustment, an in-podcast adjustment, I did. everybody. I did. I, I, I always make an in-podcast adjustment, but it's usually just in my head, so I don't have to revise myself. But I did I'm this just, one publicly uh, because they deserve they deserved a higher score. So you don't have to come back 15 years later like Roger yeah, Ebert exactly. and write another review? Exactly. Which, by the way, I love Roger Ebert. He's an all-time. He's classic. Yep. So, But I've seen him come back, and I, I actually love that. Like, he's not... Here's the thing about the ratings. I love the idea that he was cool enough to go, look, I was wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, but I can't imagine many critics are willing to do that. 
That's what I mean. I, I love the idea that he came back. He's done it half a dozen times. I don't know how many. But he'll come back and say, let me redo this one. Right. I mean, critics, they, they like to hold themselves in high esteem. And uh, exactly. they don't like to admit when they're wrong. So, But Roger Ebert, man, he, he, he gave credit where credit was due. He's not afraid to come back and rescind his words. I like that. Props to Roger Ebert, RIP. Yep. <laughs> Um, this is the Tame Aperture podcast. Go check us out at tameaperture.com. Look for our previous catalog, previous episodes. Also, jump on board, make recommendations for future episodes to watch. And Alan, it's been a pleasure talking about some of my favorite filmmakers with you. It's fun. Super fun. I'm, I'm really glad we got to do this one. We'll come back around to the Coen brothers eventually. Maybe anybody listening, if you have a favorite Coen film, uh, give us a shout out. Let us know which that is, and maybe we'll review it on one of the next podcasts. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This is uh, Gabe and Alan with the Tame Aperture Podcast signing out. Take care, everybody. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.